morning, Illuminate. So good to be with you guys. As always, welcome everybody joining us online as well. Uh, Look, over the last uh, several months, we have been opening up this ancient text known as the book of Genesis, and we've been realizing how incredibly relevant it is to our lives. So if you're new, that's a little bit of the background. Also, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you yet, I would love to be able to do that. Right after the service, I'll be right down here uh, in front. So here's where we're at in the story. Going to jump right into it, if you don't mind. We're in Genesis chapter 42. Uh, Again, we've been looking at the life of this young guy, Joseph. And uh, last week, we saw him go from the pit to the palace, uh, literally overnight. But it all began... 13 years earlier, when he was just 17 years old, by way of reminder, he was his father's favorite. He was the second youngest, had 11 brothers, 10 of them older, but he was his father's favorite. If you remember, he had this special coat that signified a special right place, privilege in the family that was actually reserved for the firstborn, but it was given to Joseph. So his other brothers, his older brothers look at him and they're like, nah, we're not having this. And they want to kill him. Additionally, he has this dream wherein his brothers bow down to him. In his naivety, he shares the contents of the dream. (laughs) His brothers are like, you're going to have to die. They throw him in a pit, essentially an empty cistern held water, and they strip him of the coat. The word, Hebrew word used to describe the stripping of the coat is also the same word that's used to describe how they would skin an animal. It's violent. He's begging for his life. Totally rejected by his own. We've said many times, there is no pain like family pain. There is no pain like family pain. Rejected by his own, Rather than kill him, they decide to make a profit off of him, so they sell him as a slave. Some traders are headed to Egypt. There he goes, half naked, no more beautiful coat, in chains, head shaved, on his way to serve, ends up in the house of an influential guy named Potiphar. Shortly thereafter, he gets falsely accused of sexual misconduct, gets thrown into prison. Clearly, God has forgotten him. I mean, isn't that the story from the outside looking in? If there was ever a guy that was tempted to say, God, where are you? God, why have you abandoned me? Here, I've been faithful to you, been obedient. And now half my life as a slave and in a dungeon. What's the story, God? But we don't see that from him. Instead, we see this faithfulness during this really difficult time period. We've talked about this, you know. We've talked about how there's this concept in the Bible all throughout it that we just don't want. We don't want it to be there because it's painful. In a word, delay. There are things in your life, there are certainly things in my life. I'm wanting some quick resolution, right? It's it's like... Pain avoidance is so natural. We want that pain to come to an end. And yet it persists. Why is that? Well, there's something that God is doing in the delay. He's producing things in us that would otherwise not be there. How do we learn to be patient without some form of weight? God has just built these things into the nature, the reality of life. So Joseph has been faithful. 
He's in this dungeon, seemingly forgotten, but not by God, because in the right moment, in the right moment, God elevates him. King David, before he became king, he spent 40 years in the wilderness, a long time in the wilderness, essentially learning how to be a king, just being faithful in the mundane and the monotonous things of everyday shepherding life. Moses is wandering around out in the wilderness for 40 years, and then at the age of 80, God says, now, now you're ready. Now's your time, 80 years old. And Moses still comes up with excuses and God says, no, 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 that's the the point. The fact that you're weak will prove to everyone around you that the power is not in you. The power is actually through you. There's great strength that comes when a man or a woman empties himself or herself of themselves because then they're able to be filled with God. That's what we call Humility, that's exactly where Joseph is in the midst of a really difficult time. So he's experienced uh, God working through him and the interpretation of some dreams. Then all of a sudden, the king, Pharaoh, he starts dreaming. He has a couple of really weird dreams and he's bugged by them. As we talked about last week, the Egyptians were really into dream interpretation. They had literature, books devoted to the interpretation of dreams. They had people who were paid to interpret dreams. They believed that when you slept and dreamt, you were in contact with the spirit world and they were speaking to you and they were telling you important things about your life and the world around you. And so there's this really strange dream and Pharaoh's like, he's really disturbed by it. He's like, I have to understand what it means. And then someone says, hey, um, I remember there's this guy that interpreted my dreams for me when I was in the dungeon and he's still there. I bet you he could help you. So literally overnight, here's this emaciated dungeon dweller whom everybody has forgotten and he's standing before one of if not the most powerful men in the known world at this time king shares the dream joseph interprets it three times though he says want to make something clear it's not actually my power my understanding that's interpreting the dream it's actually coming to me from god god has given you the dream god will give me the ability to interpret so this is all god i'm just the vessel Share it with me. King shares the dream. Essentially what he's told is there's going to be seven years of abundant harvest, seven years of famine. The king is so impressed with this man's ability to interpret the dream. Well, he does and says this, chapter 41, verse 38. And Pharaoh said to his servants, how about this guy? Can we find a man like this in whom is the, this is amazing. He says, in whom is the spirit of, and he uses the word Elohim. Here's this Egyptian. Egyptians were polytheistic. They had so many gods. And yet he's voicing the name of the one true Hebrew God, Elohim. The spirit of Elohim is in this guy. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since Elohim, your God, has shown you all this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. And now for the promotion. You shall be over my house. All my people shall order themselves as you command. Whatever you say, they will do. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. This is the number two position in the kingdom. Then, and Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand and he put it on Joseph's hand and clothed him in garments of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and he made him ride in his second chariot. And they called out before him, bow the knee, bow the knee. This He set him over all the land of Egypt. So he goes from the pit to the prison to the palace. Like that. In God's timing and 
clearly in God's way. He's given the king's signet ring. This is really, really uh, important because what this tells you is that whatever authority the king has, Joseph now has. The signet ring was used to give the king's stamp of approval on notes, literature, things that were written. And so essentially now, Joseph has the authority of the king literally on his finger. It would have been a ring that had hieroglyphics. It would have had the king's name on it. He's an ambassador on behalf of the Egyptian kingdom. He's given a gold chain, fine linen. Archaeologists have actually uncovered some of this Egyptian fine linen, and it's so finely woven, it's almost transparent. So you can picture the guy wearing this. I mean, literally, he's dressed in rags, and now he's dressed in the finest clothing that the world has to offer. He's given the second chariot. This is like going from, I don't know, you know, like a, a Honda Civic to a G-Wagon. <laughs> I mean, right, when Joseph rolls up, he's in style. And these guys go before him, and they literally say, give the man respect. Bow. Additionally, what we learn is that the Egyptian king gives Joseph an Egyptian name. And he gives him an Egyptian wife, but this isn't just any girl. Her father, turns out, is one of the royal high priests who serves one of, if not the greatest Egyptian god, the sun god, Ra. He served in the city of Hierapolis, which literally means sun city. He's the man in charge of religious life in this city that serves this Egyptian god. That means she's of noble blood. He's super successful. He's wealthy beyond his imagination. He has more power than he can fathom. And what's happening is the king is wanting to turn Joseph into an Egyptian. I think this is probably the greatest test of this young man's life. At about this point, he's about 29, 30 years old. That's young to have that kind of power and authority and wealth. And the temptation is to leave behind all things Hebrew, including Elohim, his Hebrew God, and to run towards all things Egyptian. Oh, because it is a sweet life. This is a challenge for all people. The reality is hard times tend to make us lean into God. Easy times make us lean into ourselves. How many people return to church because they find themselves in a pit where they have nowhere to look but up? Hard times, we have a tendency to lean into God. Things are going well, we tend to forget God exists. Things are going really well for this young guy. And the temptation is to forget God. Wealth conveys an aspect of intelligence, unjustifiably, by the way, but it does. Life at the top makes one feel wise and special. Because what it tells others is, there's no one quite like me. 
there's no one quite like me. So this is a really, this is a, this is, there's probably something here for at least a few people in the room because there are some very accomplished people in this building. There's some very successful people. I would say certainly by the world, by the world standards, this room is filled with an abundance of highly skilled, very successful people. And the temptation is for us to become our own worst enemies in our success. It's what I love about the, the life of Joseph because I'm very happy to say he responds to it all very well. Why? Because he leans into God in both the hard times and the good times. He believed what God had said. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's a challenge. Um, it's a challenge that he faces well simply because he trusts God and obeys him. And you've heard me say many times before, if you want your life to be under God's hand of blessing, be obedient. Be obedient. Now what you're going to see in this guy is some crazy good examples for us all because he's in the midst of this really crazy secular culture but this guy swims so far and so hard upstream, it's remarkable. So we'll get to that in a second. Pharaoh's dream indicates that there will be seven years of abundance, seven years of famine. So Joseph rolls up his sleeves and he gets to work. Now here's what we know about the lower Nile Delta region. It can be actually quite dry and arid. And so what the Egyptians would do is they would dig canals, irrigation ditches, and divert the water away from the Nile into these floodplains. And the Egyptians were very good at this because the Nile was like life to them. In fact, we actually have some ancient writings. They would uh, measure the depth of the Nile, the width, its flow on what would, they would call literally a Nileometer. They were really into it because the Nile held the power of life and death. We know it from history tells us that at least on two occasions, at some points, the Nile was so low that it caused a massive famine, so much so that the Egyptians turned to cannibalism to stay alive. So the Egyptians were really into managing this water. So know that, knowing that these lean years are coming, Joseph, he just begins to pile up in the abundant years. He's piling up all of this grain in preparation. Now, during this time, Joseph has two boys. And he names these boys in such a way as to show you that he's still clinging to his Hebrew God. Here's how we know. The boys have Hebrew names, Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh's name is really interesting because literally the name means one who makes me forget my sorrow, which is perfect for this guy because family pain doesn't leave you easily. And it's almost like he's like, I, I experienced the rejection of family, the beatdowns, the harsh treatment, the neglect. Man, that just doesn't go away. But now I have this child in my life that will give me joy. Manasseh. He will make me forget the pain of my past. And then he has another child. He names him Ephraim, which means fertile, which is another way of saying God is blessing me. So here's this guy in the midst of this crazy secular culture, polytheistic. And, uh, and he's declaring that my God is still the Hebrew God. He understands where his success comes from. Literally, he survives it, thrives in it, and uses it for good. I like what the Puritan Cotton Mather said. 
He said, religion begat prosperity. And then the daughter devoured the mother. How does he respond so well? I think it has a lot to do with his 13 years of confinement, mistreatment, and quite frankly, abuse. Um, He knew God controlled every aspect of his life. And he wasn't willing to waste any of it. And that's my, encourage, that's my encouragement to us. The low points in your life, don't waste them. Every single person in this room has them. Don't waste them. How do you not waste them? You understand that God has a larger picture in store that you can't totally figure out right now but you know he's in charge. I heard it described like this. Imagine that you're a radio operator on board a battleship in the Pacific during World War II. And you're working the radio and all of a sudden this SOS call comes in. So you receive it and immediately you report to the admiral. Admiral, there's an SOS call that's come in from another ship. They're distressed. What are we gonna do? And the admiral looks at you and is completely unresponsive. You can tell he's thinking, but he makes no response. So you go back to your radio and a couple minutes later, SOS call comes in again. You rush to the admiral and you say, okay, that's the second time. Second time is, what are we gonna do? We gotta do something, we gotta help. We can't just do nothing. The admiral looks at you and remains silent. And so at this point, you're getting frustrated. (laughs) You're like, should I take things into my own hands? You know, something needs to be done. Clearly the admiral's oblivious, he's not doing anything. Then the admiral's assistant pulls you aside and he says, there's something you need to know. The admiral's son is the captain of that ship. And immediately your perspective is reframed because you know that the admiral is not responding out of a lack of interest. You know that he's not being apathetic. What you know is that he probably knows something that you don't. So many things in life are like that. It's like we think we can see things so clearly and it's like clearly this is what needs to be done. And God is behind the scenes going, you have no idea what I'm about to do and how I'm about to do it. And actually it's gonna be far greater than what you expect. But you see, I want something done in your life. And if I did it your way, we're gonna circumnavigate what needs to be done. So delay, wait, I'll give you a great example. Romans chapter one, the apostle Paul writes to Christians living in the city of Rome. Now, if you lived in the city of Rome, on a daily basis, you would hear this phrase. Caesar is Lord. Caesar is Lord. Now, maybe you've heard Christians say, Jesus is Lord. They, Christians actually copted the phrase, Caesar is Lord, and they took it from the Romans and they said, no, 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 no. Not for us. No, no, no. Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. Caesar did not rise from the dead. Jesus did. Jesus is Lord. So you're the Apostle Paul, and you're writing to these Christians in, in this crazy secular city, the heartbeat of Roman civilization, and, and he says, I want to be with you guys so bad. I wish, in fact, he says, I'm praying that God will allow me to come visit you. Well, guess what happens? Paul does visit them in Rome. You know how? In chains as a prisoner. 
You think he wanted it that way? Yeah, God definitely answered his prayer, not in the way that he expected. It cost a lot of money to get to Rome. That was probably part of what Paul was thinking. How am I going to get the funds to go to Rome? Well, guess what? Rome just paid all of his expenses <laughs> to visit the Christians. Paul's like, oh, okay. I'll give you a better example. In John 17, Jesus prays to the Father, and he says, can we go back to the way it was? Can you restore to me the place of privilege and prestige and honor that I had before I came to the earth at your side? And the response is, yeah, we're going to do that. That's going to happen. But the path is through the cross. So Joseph has no idea of what God is doing behind the scenes. But because he remained faithful and he didn't turn his back on God, he was able to see God's hand in his life. And it's a remarkable example uh, for, for all of us. So by naming his boys Manasseh and Ephraim, it's his way of saying, God, I'm still with you. God, I haven't forgotten. God, I recognize that this is all you. Now, having said that, I think it's really important for Christians to, inf to confess Jesus as Lord. I don't think we do that enough. And uh, again, put in its first century context, this, uh, this was dangerous. If you started running around, running around saying Jesus is Lord, well, Caesar, it was believed, came from the gods. And, and it was subversive to say that anybody else was Lord. And yet Christians were bold enough to say, no, nah, no, nah, not for us. And it made them really dangerous. They were, they were swimming hard against the cultural current. They weren't buying into the, cultural, the culture's ideology. Uh, some years later, Nero will come to power. And he decides that Christians must die for this. But once again, what happens? Well, in an effort to exterminate Christianity, he inadvertently throws gas on it. And within a couple hundred years, Christianity will become the religion of the Roman Empire. And then religion begat prosperity. And the daughter ate the mother. In hard times, we lean into God. In easy times, we lean into ourselves. Maybe God wants some hard times to come. Now, that's good theology. Now, the question is, how do his people respond? So what happens next in the life of Joseph shows the sovereign hand of God in the most incredible way. The famine in Egypt, is so, it's a supply chain issue, right? It's like if it gets bad in Egypt, it's going to get bad in Canaan, which is where his family's at, his brothers. Chapter 42, verse 1, when Jacob learned, that's Jacob, that's his dad, learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his son, this is such a dad conversation. I can totally see me saying this to my kids. Why are you looking at one another? You know, it's like they're standing around like, like come on, guy, do something. You know, it's kind of like, can you get a job? <laughs> and, he, and he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die, boys. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. 10. He has 11. One doesn't go. Interesting. Why? Jacob did not send Benjamin. Now, Benjamin's the youngest, which is Joseph's brother. Joseph and uh, Benjamin have the same mom. 
with his brothers. Why? Because he feared that harm might happen to him. Yeah, for good reason. Because the last time he sent the older boys with the younger, what happened? The younger didn't come back. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came for the famine was in the land of Canaan. 13 years after Joseph has this crazy dream about his family bowing down, his brothers bowing down, his brothers being like, yeah, right. Like that's gonna happen, little boy. Uh, verse six, now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land and Joseph's brothers came and what did they do? Those boys bow down. They bowed themselves before him with their faces to the dirt. What do you think is going through Joseph's mind? I guarantee what's going through his mind. Oh, this is how the dream is fulfilled. Okay, God. But he's in this place where he's not resisting God in the difficult times and questioning God over and over and over and, and like turning his back on God. He's like, okay, let's wait and see how this plays itself out. Delay. And then in this incredible way, what a moment for him. Think about it, man. His, what's going on inside his heart? It's got to be racing. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized him. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Why? Because he wants to know if they've changed. Additionally, where's little brother Benjamin? I see 10 of you, but where's, where's the little brother? He's thinking all of this. Now, this is a conversation that's going on. He's speaking Egyptian. There's a translator going on as we find out, translation going on uh, as we find out in a second. So he's speaking Egyptian. They're speaking Hebrew. They have no clue. Where do you come from? He said, they said, well, we, we, we come from the land of Canaan when we're here to buy food, just like everybody else. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Even after he speaks to them, they don't recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. Yeah, I bet. And he said to them, nah, you guys are spies. Spy? What do you mean? We're not spies. Now, do you know the power that, that Joseph has? He could annihilate these guys in an instant with absolutely no consequence to himself. Spies, you're spies. Uh, and, and you've come to see the nakedness of the land. You want to expose us and attack us. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. I like to put myself in this scene and imagine what it would be like. Wouldn't it be funny if... Uh, you know, they're coming because their stomachs are growling. And basically, dad says, listen, if you don't go, we're going to starve to death. Go. So they show up. And what's the sound that they hear? Right? All the ten, ten of these boys, their stomachs are growling right now. Well, the last time Joseph was with him, his stomach was growling. But by how things have turned. Incredible power he has right now. What would you do? Power in and of itself, as you know, is not evil. It's what you do with it. And, uh, and, and why doesn't Joseph wield it? Why? Well, I think he understood where his power came from. He understands clearly, I am in this place of authority because God set me here. Therefore, because I know, watch this, because I know where my power comes from, I will not abuse it. Did you catch that? We have a lot of powerful and influential and people, a lot of you have a lot of authority. Where does your authority come from? If you understand that your authority comes from God, you're going to be far less likely to abuse that authority. Joseph is a little bit of the cat to his brother's mouse. Uh, he wants to find out what's going on. And by the way, where is Benjamin? 
Uh, now, again, this conversation is happening through a translator. They speak Hebrew. Joseph is speaking Egyptian. It's part of the disguise. Verse 18, on the third day, Joseph said to them, all right, do this and you will live. In other words, he's about to say, prove to me that you're not spies. Then he says, for I fear God. And he uses the word Elohim, which you would think in their minds, they'd be thinking, wait, did he just say Elohim? But they're still not catching on. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. I want to know that he's alive and that you're not lying to me. Did you do to him what you did to me? I want to see him. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress in his soul when he begged us. He begged us, and we did not listen. So this gives you insight into just how gnarly it was for young Joseph. He's attacked by his brothers, and he's literally, don't do this, don't do this. You're killing me, you're killing me. And they didn't listen. In fact, it says they throw him in the pit, they leave him, and then they go eat together. Did I not tell you? He says, this is why our distress has come upon us. And Reuben, the oldest, answered them, did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? This is such an older brother thing to say. But you did not listen. Yeah, right. It's like mostly his idea. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Now look at this. Then Joseph, he turned away from them, and he wept. He hears some kind of change within them, but he's also reliving the horror of the abuse at the hands of his own family. And he weeps. He composes himself, returns to them, and he took Simeon, one of the brothers, and, the, and he bound him right in front of him, tie him up. And the other brothers are like, dudes, this is serious. Simeon steps up. He's chained up. Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and placed every man's money in his sack. They're not totally aware of this. This is another cat and mouse game. And to give them provisions for the journey, this was done for them. More on this next week. Now, let's take a step back and realize what's going on here. These guys are super calloused men. These men know extreme violence. Two of them wiped out an entire tribe. These men know, uh, they have anger issues, uh, they know murder, they have lots of blood on their hands. These are hardened men. But here, something's happening to them. There's regret, and it's this, there's this confession that is tinged with sorrow. And the reason why is because you can't bury your sins forever. How many times have I been at the bedside of someone and they live their lives mostly apart from God, but realizing they're about to face whatever's next and you'd be amazed at what comes out in that moment. (laughs) A lot of gnarly confession. Why? Because it's like, I've kept this down. I know it was wrong. I, I did, I went, well, when I was doing it, I knew it was wrong in my conscience and in my soul. And before I meet the God cre- who created me, I need to get this right. And Joseph understands every word of this conversation. And he's so moved by it 
that he turns away and he weeps because in effect what he's hearing is an apology. And they no longer call him the dreamer. They refer to him as Lord. And they say, we shouldn't have done that to our brother. We were wrong. And yet we continued to abuse him. Let me say this too. The admission that you have wronged another person is essential. It is crucial in helping that person heal. The person you have wronged or offended, it, it is so important that you own the wrong you have done in order for that person to truly heal. By the way, it's also essential for your own healing. Joseph will cry three more times before this is over. But this is a godly sorrow. And you know that because it brings about godly restoration. I'm reminded of the two thieves on either side of Jesus. This is incredible. There's so much being communicated in just these short verses here in this scene in the life of the crucifixion of Jesus. But he's got these two criminals on either side. and One criminal says, essentially commands Jesus, if you come from God, if you have the power of God, save us. Get us off of this, this, this cross. Get us down from this wood, right? Save us. Well, Jesus was saving them, but not in the way he thought. Putting Jesus to the test, prove yourself. The other thief is like, hold up. We have done wrong. This guy is innocent. And then he says to Jesus, wherever you're going, I want to be. Which one of those two guys gets saved? The repentant one. All right? Jesus comes on the scene and he says, produce deeds in keeping with repentance. We can say, sorry, but unless there is some change of mind about what you're doing that leads to a change of heart, the words fall short. You know that in your relationships. Right? If, if you simply say you're sorry to your spouse, but you keep up the offense, those words fall flat. So, can I encourage you? Let godly sorrow sink into your soul because when it does, it leads you to God's good grace. And that's such a beautiful thing. So I want to give you the opportunity to do that now, if you'll let me. Um, I would just ask, just to free you from any distraction, if you would, just in this moment between you and the God who created you, I'm going to have you bow your heads and close your eyes. What is that godly sorrow that God's spirit kind of nudging you toward? Because ultimately, at the end of that, at the end of that godly sorrow road, there is God's good grace waiting for you. But it begins with a recognition that you've done wrong. This is the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We're all sinners. And the consequence is that there's a separation between us and God. Well, Jesus is the bridge. Jesus took upon himself those wages. He died in our place. So when God looks at us, he looks at us now as forgiven. That, no, the, the God is only bound by his nature. He is just. So God's justice has been satisfied through the death of Jesus. So those who appropriate that for themselves, God looks at you through the lens of his son, forgiven. But it requires a change in your thinking. Consider this, if people can believe whatever they want to believe and still get into heaven, 
if they can do whatever they want to do and still get into heaven, (laughs) I guarantee you it's no longer heaven. Heaven becomes hell. So, Father, in this moment, will you just bend the knee of our hearts in the best possible way? It leads us toward your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness, and that's where we find such life. And then when we really understand it, we're so quick to extend those things to those around us. So, Father, I pray that not a soul would leave here without feeling some profound impression from you upon them. Because always we want to lift up Jesus. Jesus is the answer to the world's problems. Ultimately, it's a change in heart that affects the waywardness, the trajectory of our planet. Jesus brings about the right change. So we lift him up to you this morning, as always, for his fame and his renown. And God's people said, amen.